Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 1 of The Seawolf. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nick Bolka. The Sea Wolf by Jack London. Chapter 1. I scarcely know where to begin, though I sometimes facetiously place the cause of it all to Charlie Furiseth's credit. He kept a summer cottage in Mill Valley under the shadow of Mount Tamopeus, and never occupied it except when he loafed through the winter months and read Nietzsche and Schopenhauer to rest his brain. When summer came on, he elected to sweat out a hot and dusty existence in the city, and to toil incessantly. Had it not been my custom to run up to see him every Saturday afternoon, and to stop over till Monday morning, this particular January Monday morning would not have found me afloat on San Francisco Bay. Not but that I was afloat in a safe craft, for the Martinez was a new ferry steamer, making her fourth or fifth trip on the run between Sausalito and San Francisco. The danger lay in the heavy fog which blanketed the bay, and of which, as a landsman, I had little apprehension. In fact, I remember the placid exultation with which I took up my position on the forward upper deck, directly beneath the pilot-house, and allowed the mystery of the fog to lay hold of my imagination. A fresh breeze was blowing, and for a time I was alone in the moist obscurity. Yet not alone, for I was dimly conscious of the presence of the pilot, and of what I took to be the captain, in the glass house above my head. I remember thinking how comfortable it was, this division of labor which made it unnecessary for me to study fogs, winds, tides, and navigation in order to visit my friend who lived across an arm of the sea. It was good that men should be specialists, I mused. The peculiar knowledge of the pilot and captain sufficed for many thousands of people who knew no more of the sea and navigation than I knew. On the other hand, instead of having to devote my energy to the learning of a multitude of things, I concentrated it upon a few particular things, such as, for instance, the analysis of Poe's place in American literature, an essay of mine, by the way, in the current Atlantic. Coming aboard, as I passed through the cabin, I had noticed with greedy eyes a stout gentleman reading the Atlantic, which was open at my very essay. And there it was again, the division of labor, the special knowledge of the pilot and captain which permitted the stout gentleman to read my special knowledge on Poe while they carried him safely from Sausalito to San Francisco. A red-faced man slamming the cabin door behind him and stumping out on the deck interrupted my reflections. 
though I made a mental note of the topic for use in a projected essay, which I had thought of calling The Necessity for Freedom, a plea for the artist. The red-faced man shot a glance up at the pilot-house, gazed around at the fog, stumped across the deck and back, he evidently had artificial legs, and stood still by my side, legs wide apart and with an expression of keen enjoyment on his face. I was not wrong when I decided that his days had been spent on the sea. "'It's nasty weather like this here that turns heads gray before their time,' he said with a nod toward the pilot-house. "'I had not thought there was any particular strain,' I answered. "'It seems as simple as A, B, C. They know the direction by compass, the distance and the speed. I should not call it anything more than mathematical certainty.' "'Strain!' he snorted. "'Simple as A, B, C. Mathematical certainty.' He seemed to brace himself up and lean backward against the air as he stared at me. "'How about this here tide that's rushing out through the Golden Gate?' he demanded, or bellowed, rather. "'How fast is she ebbing? What's the drift, eh? Listen to that, will you? A bell buoy. And we're atop of it. See em altering the course?' From out of the fog came the mournful tolling of a bell, and I could see the pilot turning the wheel with great rapidity. The bell, which had seemed straight ahead, was now sounding from the side. Our own whistle was blowing hoarsely, and from time to time the sound of other whistles came to us from out of the fog. "'That's a ferry-boat of some sort,' the newcomer said, indicating a whistle off to the right. "'And there, do you hear that? Blown by mouth. Some scow-schooner, most likely.' Better watch out, Mr. Schoonerman. Ah, I thought so. Now hell's a-poppin' for somebody. The unseen ferryboat was blowing blast after blast, and the mouth-blown horn was tooting in terror-stricken fashion. And now they're paying their respects to each other and trying to get clear, the red-faced man went on, as the hurried whistling ceased. His face was shining, his eyes flashing with excitement as he translated into articulate language the speech of the horns and sirens. That's the steam siren a-going it over to the left, and you hear that fellow with a frog in his throat? A steam schooner, as near as I can judge, crawling in from the heads against the tide. A shrill little whistle, piping as if gone mad, came from directly ahead and from very near at hand. Gong sounded on the Martinez. Our paddle wheels stopped, their pulsing beat died away, and then they started again. The shrill little whistle, like the chirping of a cricket amidst the cries of great beasts, shot through the fog from more to the side and swiftly grew fainter and fainter. I looked to my companion for enlightenment. One of them daredevil launches, he said. I almost wish we'd sunk him, the little rip. They're the cause of more trouble. Now what good are they? Any jackass gets aboard one and runs it from hell to breakfast, blowing his whistle to beat the band, and telling the rest of the world to look out for him, because he's coming and can't look out for himself. Because he's coming. And you've got to look out, too. 
right of way common decency they don't know the meaning of it i felt quite amused at his unwarranted collar and while he stumped indignantly up and down i felt it dwelling upon the romance of the fog and romantic it certainly was the fog like the gray shadow of infinite mystery brooding over the whirling speck of earth and men mere motes of light and sparkle cursed with an insane relish for work riding their steeds of wood and steel through the heart of the mystery groping their way blindly through the unseen and clamoring and clanging in confident speech while their hearts are heavy with incertitude and fear the voice of my companion brought me back to myself with a laugh i too had been groping and floundering the while i thought i rode clear-eyed through the mystery hello somebody coming our way he was saying and do you hear that he's coming fast walking right along guess he don't hear us yet wind's in wrong direction the fresh breeze was blowing right down upon us and i could hear the whistle plainly off to one side and a little ahead ferry boat i asked he nodded then added or he wouldn't be keeping up such a clip he gave a short chuckle <laughs> they're getting anxious up there i glanced up the captain had thrust his head and shoulders out of the pilot-house and was staring intently into the fog as if though by sheer force of will he could penetrate it his face was anxious as was the face of my companion who had stumped over to the rail and was gazing with a like intentness in the direction of the invisible danger then everything happened and with inconceivable rapidity the fog seemed to break away as though split by a wedge and the bow of a steamboat emerged trailing fog wreaths on either side like seaweed on the snout of a leviathan i could see the pilot-house and a white-bearded man leaning partly out of it on his elbows he was clad in a blue uniform and i remember noting how trim and quiet he was his quietness under the circumstances was terrible he accepted destiny marched hand in hand with it and coolly measured the stroke as he leaned there he ran a calm and speculative eye over us as though to determine the precise point of the collision and took no notice whatever when our pilot white with rage shouted now you've done it on looking back i realized that the remark was too obvious to make rejoinder necessary grab hold of something and hang on the red-faced man said to me all his bluster had gone and he seemed to have caught the contagion of preternatural calm and listen to the women scream he said grimly almost bitterly i thought as though he had been through the experience before the vessels came together before I could follow his advice. We must have been struck squarely amidships, for I saw nothing, the strange steamboat having passed beyond my line of vision. The Martinez heeled over sharply, and there was a crashing and rending of timber. I was thrown flat on the wet deck, and before I could scramble to my feet, I heard the scream of the women. This it was, I am certain the most indescribable of blood-curdling sounds that threw me into a panic i remembered the life preservers stored in the cabin 
but was met at the door and swept backwards by a wild rush of men and women. What happened in the next few minutes I do not recollect, though I have a clear remembrance of pulling down life preservers from the overhead racks while the red-faced man fastened them about the bodies of an hysterical group of women. This memory is as distinct and sharp as that of any picture I have seen. It is a picture, and I can see it now. The jagged edges of the hole in the side of the cabin, through which the gray fog swirled and eddied. The empty, upholstered seats littered with all the evidences of sudden flight, such as packages, hand satchels, umbrellas, and wraps. The stout gentleman, who had been reading my essay, encased in cork and canvas, the magazine still in his hand, and asking me with monotonous insistence if I thought there was any danger. The red-faced man, stumping gallantly around on his artificial legs and buckling life-preservers on all comers. And finally, the screaming bedlam of women. This it was, the screaming of the women, that most tried my nerves. It must have tried, too, the nerves of the red-faced man, for I have another picture which will never fade from my mind. The stout gentleman is stuffing the magazine into his overcoat pocket and looking on curiously. A tangled mass of women with drawn white faces and open mouths is shrieking like a chorus of lost souls, and the red-faced man, his face now purplish with wrath, with his arms extended overhead, as in the act of hurling thunderbolts, is shouting, Shut up! Oh, shut up! I remember the scene impelled me to sudden laughter, and in the next instant I realized I was becoming hysterical myself. For these were women of my own kind, like my mother and sisters, with the fear of death upon them, and unwilling to die and I remember that the sounds they made reminded me of the squealing of pigs under the knife of the butcher, and I was struck with horror at the vividness of the analogy. These women, capable of the most sublime emotions, of the tenderest sympathies, were open-mouthed and screaming. They wanted to live. They were helpless like rats in a trap, and they screamed. The horror of it drove me out on deck. I was feeling sick and squeamish, and sat down on a bench. In a hazy way I saw and heard men rushing and shouting as they strove to lower the boats. It was just as I had read descriptions of such scenes in books. The tackles jammed. Nothing worked. One boat lowered away with the plugs out, filled with women and children, and then with water, and capsized. Another boat had been lowered by one end and still hung in the tackle by the other end where it had been abandoned. Nothing was to be seen of the strange steamboat which had caused the disaster, though I heard men saying she would undoubtedly send boats to our assistance. I descended to the lower deck. The Martinez was sinking fast, for the water was very near. Numbers of the passengers were leaping overboard, others in the water were clamoring to be taken aboard again. No one heeded them. A cry arose that we were sinking. I was seized by the consequent panic and went over the side in a surge of bodies. How I went over I do not know, 
though I did know, and instantly, why those in the water were so desirous of getting back on the steamer. The water was cold, so cold that it was painful. The pang as I plunged into it was as quick and sharp as that of fire. It bit to the marrow. It was like the grip of death. I gasped with the anguish and shock of it, filling my lungs before the life-preserver popped me to the surface. The taste of the salt was strong in my mouth, and I was strangling with the acrid stuff in my throat and lungs. But it was the cold that was most distressing. I felt that I could survive but a few minutes. People were struggling and floundering in the water about me. I could hear them crying out to one another, and I heard also the sound of oars. Evidently, the strange steamboat had lowered its boats. As the time went by, I marveled that I was still alive. I had no sensation whatever in my lower limbs, while a chilling numbness was wrapping about my heart and creeping into it. Small waves, with spiteful foaming crests, continually broke over me and into my mouth, sending me off into more strangling paroxysms. The noises grew indistinct, though I heard a final and despairing chorus of screams in the distance and knew that the Martinez had gone down. Later, how much later I have no knowledge, I came to myself with a start of fear. I was alone. I could hear no calls or cries, only the sound of the waves, made weirdly hollow and reverberant by the fog. A panic in a crowd, which partakes of a sort of community of interest, is not so terrible as a panic when one is by oneself, and such a panic I now suffered. Whither was I drifting? The red-faced man had said that the tide was ebbing through the Golden Gate. Was I then being carried out to sea? And the life-preserver in which I floated, was it not liable to go to pieces at any moment? I had heard of such things being made of paper, and hollow rushes which quickly became saturated, and lost all buoyancy. And I could not swim a stroke. And I was alone, floating, apparently, in the midst of a great primordial vastness. I confess that a madness seized me that I shrieked aloud as the women had shrieked, and beat the water with my numb hands. How long this lasted I have no conception, for a blankness intervened, of which I remember no more than one remembers of troubled and painful sleep. When I aroused it was as after centuries of time, and I saw, almost above me and emerging from the fog, the bow of a vessel and three triangular sails, each shrewdly lapping the other and filled with wind. Where the bow cut the water there was a great foaming and gurgling, and I seemed directly in its path. I tried to cry out, but was too exhausted. The bow plunged down, just missing me, and sending a swash of water clear over my head. Then the long black side of the vessel began slipping past so near that I could have touched it with my hands. I tried to reach it, in a mad resolve to claw into the wood with my nails, but my arms were heavy and lifeless. Again I strove to call out, but made no sound. 
the stern of the vessel shot by dropping as it did so into a hollow between the waves and i caught a glimpse of a man standing at the wheel and of another man who seemed to be doing little else than smoke a cigar i saw the smoke issuing from his lips as he slowly turned his head and glanced out over the water in my direction it was a careless unpremeditated glance one of those haphazard things men do when they have no immediate call to do anything in particular but act because they are alive and must do something but life and death were in that glance i could see the vessel being swallowed up in the fog i saw the back of the man at the wheel and the head of the other man turning slowly turning as his gaze struck the water and casually lifted along it toward me his face wore an absent expression as of deep thought and i became afraid that if his eyes did light upon me he would nevertheless not see me but his eyes did light upon me and looked squarely into mine and he did see me for he sprang to the wheel thrusting the other man aside and whirled it round and round hand over hand at the same time shouting orders of some sort the vessel seemed to go off at a tangent to its former course and leapt almost instantly from view into the fog i felt myself slipping into unconsciousness and tried with all the power of my will to fight above the suffocating blankness and darkness that was rising around me a little later i heard the stroke of oars growing nearer and nearer and the calls of a man when he was very near, I heard him crying in vexed fashion, Why in hell don't you sing out? This meant me, I thought. And then the blankness and darkness rose over me. End of chapter 1this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sea Wolf by Jack London Chapter 2 I seemed swinging in a mighty rhythm through orbit vastness. Sparkling points of light spluttered and shot past me. They were stars, I knew, and flaring comets that peopled my flight among the suns. As I reached the limit of my swing and prepared to rush back on the counterswing, a great gong struck and thundered. For an immeasurable period, lapped in the rippling of placid centuries, I enjoyed and pondered my tremendous flight. But a change came over the face of the dream, for a dream I told myself it must be. My rhythm grew shorter and shorter. I was jerked from swing to counter-swing with irritating haste. I could scarcely catch my breath, so fiercely was I impelled through the heavens. The gong thundered more frequently and more furiously. I grew to await it with a nameless dread. Then it seemed as though I were being dragged over rasping sands, white and hot in the sun. This gave place to a sense of intolerable anguish. My skin was scorching in the torment of fire. The gong clanged and knelled. The sparkling points of light flashed past me in an interminable stream as though the whole sidereal system were dropping into the void. 
I gasped, caught my breath painfully, and opened my eyes. Two men were kneeling beside me, working over me. My mighty rhythm was the rift and forward plunge of a ship on the sea. The terrific gong was a frying pan hanging on the wall that rattled and clattered with each leap of the ship. The rasping, scorching sands were a man's hard hands chafing my naked chest. I squirmed under the pain of it and half lifted my head. My chest was raw and red, and I could see tiny blood globules starting through the torn and inflamed cuticle. "'That'll do, Janssen,' one of the men said. "'Can't you see? You bloomin' well rubbed all the gent's skin off.' The man addressed as Janssen, a man of the heavy Scandinavian type, ceased chafing me and arose awkwardly to his feet. The man who had spoken to him was clearly a cockney, with the clean lines and weakly pretty, almost effeminate face of the man who has absorbed the sound of bow-bells with his mother's milk. A draggled muslin cap on his head and a dirty gunny-sack about his slim hips proclaimed him cook of the decidedly dirty ship's galley in which I found myself. "'And how you feeling now, sir?' he asked, with a subservient smirk which comes only of generations of tip-seeking ancestors. For reply, I twisted weakly into a sitting posture and was helped by Janssen to my feet. The rattle and bang of the frying pan was grating horribly on my nerves. I could not collect my thoughts. Clutching the woodwork of the galley for support, and I confess the grease with which it was scummed put my teeth on edge. I reached across a hot cooking range to the offending utensil, unhooked it, and wedged it securely into the coal box. The cook grinned at my exhibition of nerves, and thrust into my hand a steaming mug with an air, this'll do your good. It was a nauseous mess. Ship's coffee but the heat of it was reviving. Between gulps of the molten stuff I glanced down at my raw and bleeding chest and turned to the Scandinavian. "'Thank you, Mr. Janssen,' I said. "'But don't you think your measures were rather heroic?' It was because he understood the reproof of my action rather than of my words that he held up his palm for inspection. It was remarkably calloused. I passed my hand over the horny projections, and my teeth went on edge once more from the horrible rasping sensation produced. "'My name is Johnson, not Janssen,' he said, in very good, though slow, English, with no more than a shade of accent to it. There was mild protest in his pale blue eyes, and withal a timid frankness and manliness that quite won me to him. "'Thank you, Mr. Johnson,' I corrected, and reached out my hand for his. He hesitated, awkward and bashful, shifted his weight from one leg to the other, then blunderingly gripped my hand in a hearty shake. "'Have you any dry clothes I may put on?' I asked the cook. "'Yes, sir,' he answered with cheerful alacrity. "'I'll run down and take a look over my kit.' 
if you have no objection, sir, to wearing me things. He dived out the galley door, or glided, rather, with a swiftness and smoothness of gait that struck me as being not so much cat-like as oily. In fact, this oiliness, or greasiness, as I was later to learn, was probably the most salient expression of his personality. "'And where am I?' I asked Johnson, whom I took, and rightly, to be one of the sailors. "'What vessel is this, and where is she bound?' "'Off the Farallones, heading about southwest,' he answered slowly and methodically, as though groping for his best English, and rigidly observing the order of my queries. The schooner Ghost bound seal-hunting to Japan. And who is the captain? I must see him as soon as I am dressed. Johnson looked puzzled and embarrassed. He hesitated while he groped in his vocabulary and framed a complete answer. The captain is Wolf Larson or so men call him. I never heard his other name. But you better speak soft with him. He is mad this morning. The mate... But he did not finish. The cook had glided in. Better sling your hook out of here, Johnson, he said. The old man'll be wantin' you on deck, and this ain't no day to fall foul of him. Johnson turned obediently to the door, at the same time over the cook's shoulder, favoring me with an amazingly solemn and portentous wink, as though to emphasize his interrupted remark and the need for me to be soft-spoken with the captain. Hanging over the cook's arm was a loose and crumpled array of evil-looking and sour-smelling garments. "'Day was put away wet, sir,' he vouchsafed explanation. "'But—' You'll have to make them do till I dry yours out by the fire. Clinging to the woodwork, staggering with the roll of the ship, and aided by the cook, I managed to slip into a rough woolen undershirt. On the instant, my flesh was creeping and crawling from the harsh contact. He noticed my involuntary twitching and grimacing, and smirked. I only hope you don't ever have to get used to such as that in this life, cause you've got a bloomin' soft skin, that you have, more like a lady's than any I know of. I was bloomin' well sure you was a gentleman as soon as I set eyes on you. I had taken a dislike to him at first, and as he helped to dress me, this dislike increased. There was something repulsive about his touch. I shrank from his hand, my flesh revolted, and between this and the smells arising from various pots boiling and bubbling on the galley fire, I was in haste to get out into the fresh air. Further, there was the need of seeing the captain about what arrangements could be made for getting me ashore. A cheap cotton shirt with frayed collar and a bosom discolored with what I took to be ancient bloodstains was put on me, amid a running and apologetic fire of comment. A pair of workmen's brogans encased my feet, and for trousers I was furnished with a pair of pale blue washed-out overalls, one leg of which was fully ten inches shorter than the other. 
the abbreviated leg looked as though the devil had there clutched for the cockney's soul and missed the shadow for the substance and whom have i to thank for this kindness i asked when i stood completely arrayed a tiny boy's cap on my head and for coat a dirty striped cotton jacket which ended at the small of my back and the sleeves of which reached just below my elbows the cook drew himself up in a smugly humble fashion a deprecating smirk on his face out of my experience with stewards on the atlantic liners at the end of the voyage i could have sworn he was waiting for his tip from my fuller knowledge of the creature i now know that the posture was unconscious an hereditary servility no doubt was responsible mugridge sir he fawned his effeminate features running into a greasy smile thomas mugridge sir at your service all right thomas i said i shall not forget you when my clothes are dry a soft light suffused his face and his eyes glistened as though somewhere in the deeps of his being his ancestors had quickened and stirred with dim memories of tips received in former lives thank you sir he said very gratefully and very humbly indeed precisely in the way that the door slid back he slid aside and i stepped out on deck I was still weak from my prolonged immersion. A puff of wind caught me, and I staggered across the moving deck to a corner of the cabin, to which I clung for support. The schooner, heeled over far out from the perpendicular, was bowing and plunging into the long Pacific roll. If she were heading southwest, as Johnson had said, the wind then, I calculated, was blowing nearly from the south. The fog was gone, and in its place the sun sparkled crisply on the surface of the water. I turned to the east, where I knew California must lie, but could see nothing save low-lying fog banks. The same fog, doubtless, that had brought about the disaster to the Martinez and placed me in my present situation. To the north, and not far away, a group of naked rocks thrust above the sea, on one of which I could distinguish a lighthouse. In the southwest, and almost in our course, I saw the pyramidal loom of some vessel's sails. Having completed my survey of the horizon, I turned to my more immediate surroundings. My first thought was that a man who had come through a collision and rubbed shoulders with death merited more attention than I received. Beyond a sailor at the wheel who stared curiously across the top of the cabin, I attracted no notice whatever. Everybody seemed interested in what was going on amidships. There, on a hatch, a large man was lying on his back. He was fully clothed, though his shirt was ripped open in front. Nothing was to be seen of his chest, however, for it was covered with a mass of black hair in appearance like the furry coat of a dog. His face and neck were hidden beneath a black beard, intershot with gray, which would have been stiff and bushy had it not been limp and draggled and dripping with water. His eyes were closed, and he was apparently unconscious, but his mouth was wide open, 
his breast heaving as though from suffocation as he labored noisily for breath. A sailor, from time to time, and quite methodically, as a matter of routine, dropped a canvas bucket into the ocean at the end of a rope, hauled it in, hand under hand, and sluiced its contents over the prostrate man. Pacing back and forth the length of the hatchways, and savagely chewing the end of a cigar, was the man whose casual glance had rescued me from the sea. His height was probably five feet ten inches, or ten and a half. But my first impression, or feel, of the man was not of this, but of his strength. And yet, while he was of massive build, with broad shoulders and deep chest, I could not characterize his strength as massive. It was what might be termed a sinewy, knotty strength, of the kind we ascribe to lean and wiry men, but which in him, because of his heavy build, partook more of the enlarged gorilla order. Not that in appearance he seemed in the least gorilla-like. What I am striving to express is this strength itself, more as a thing apart from his physical semblance. It was a strength we are wont to associate with things primitive, with wild animals, and the creatures we imagine our tree-dwelling prototypes to have been. A strength savage, ferocious, alive in itself, the essence of life, in that it is the potency of motion, the elemental stuff itself, out of which the many forms of life have been molded. In short, that which writhes in the body of a snake when the head is cut off, and the snake, as a snake, is dead, or which lingers in the shapeless lump of turtle meat and recoils and quivers from the prod of a finger. Such was the impression of strength I gathered from this man who paced up and down. He was firmly planted on his legs, his feet struck the deck squarely and with surety. Every movement of a muscle, from the heave of the shoulders to the tightening of the lips about the cigar, was decisive, and seemed to come out of a strength that was excessive and overwhelming. In fact, though this strength pervaded every action of his, it seemed but the advertisement of a greater strength that lurked within, that lay dormant and no more than stirred from time to time, but which might arouse at any moment terrible and compelling, like the rage of a lion or the wrath of a storm. The cook stuck his head out of the galley door and grinned encouragingly at me at the same time jerking his thumb in the direction of the man who paced up and down by the hatchway. Thus I was given to understand that he was the captain, the old man, in the cook's vernacular, the individual whom I must interview and put to the trouble of somehow getting me ashore. I had half started forward to get over with what I was certain would be a stormy five minutes, when a more violent, suffocating paroxysm seized the unfortunate person who was lying on his back. He wrenched and writhed about convulsively. The chin with the damp black beard pointed higher in the air as the back muscles stiffened and the chest swelled in an unconscious and instinctive effort to get more air. Under the whiskers and all unseen, I knew that the skin was taking on a purplish hue. The captain, or Wolf Larsen, as men called him, ceased pacing and gazed down at the dying man. 
so fierce had this final struggle become that the sailor paused in the act of flinging more water over him and stared curiously the canvas bucket partly tilted and dripping its contents to the deck the dying man beat a tattoo on the hatch with his heels straightened out his legs and stiffened in one great tense effort and rolled his head from side to side then the muscles relaxed the head stopped rolling and a sigh as of profound relief floated upward from his lips the jaw dropped the upper lip lifted and two rows of tobacco discolored teeth appeared it seemed as though his features had frozen into a diabolical grin at the world he had left and outwitted then a most surprising thing occurred the captain broke loose upon the dead man like a thunderclap oaths rolled from his lips in a continuous stream and they were not namby-pamby oaths or mere expressions of indecency each word was a blasphemy and there were many words they crisped and crackled like electric sparks i had never heard anything like it in my life nor could i have conceived it possible with a turn for literary expression myself and a penchant for forcible figures and phrases i appreciated as no other listener i dare say the peculiar vividness and strength and absolute blasphemy of his metaphors the cause of it all as near as i could make out was that the man who was mate had gone on a debauch before leaving san francisco and then had the poor taste to die at the beginning of the voyage and leave wolf larsen shorthanded it should be unnecessary to state at least to my friends that i was shocked oaths and vile language of any sort had always been repellent to me i felt a wilting sensation a sinking at the heart and as i might just as well say a giddiness to me death had always been invested with solemnity and dignity it had been peaceful in its occurrence sacred in its ceremonial but death in its more sordid and terrible aspects was a thing with which i had been unacquainted till now as i say while i appreciated the power of the terrific denunciation that swept out of wolf larsen's mouth i was inexpressibly shocked the scorching torrent was enough to wither the face of a corpse i should not have been surprised if the wet black beard had frizzled and curled and flared up in smoke and flame but the dead man was unconcerned he continued to grin with a sardonic humor with a cynical mockery and defiance he was master of the situation End of chapter two Chapter Three of the Sea Wolf. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sea Wolf by Jack London. Chapter Three. Wolf Larsen ceased swearing as suddenly as he had begun. He relighted his cigar and glanced around. His eyes chanced upon the cook. Well, Cookie, he began with a suaveness that was cold and of the temper of steel yes sir the cook eagerly interpolated with appeasing and apologetic servility 
Don't you think you've stretched that neck of yours just about enough? It's unhealthy, you know. The mate's gone, so I can't afford to lose you, too. You must be very, very careful of your health, Cookie. Understand? His last word, in striking contrast with the smoothness of his previous utterance, snapped like the lash of a whip. The cook quailed under it. Yes, sir, was the meek reply, as the offending head disappeared into the galley. At this sweeping rebuke, which the cook had only pointed, the rest of the crew became uninterested, and fell to work at one task or another. A number of men, however, who were lounging about a companionway between the galley and hatch, and who did not seem to be sailors, continued talking in low tones with one another. These, I afterward learned, were the hunters, the men who shot the seals, and a very superior breed to common sailor folk. Johansson, Wolf Larsen called out. A sailor stepped forward obediently. Get your palm and needle and sew the beggar up. You'll find some old canvas in the sail locker. Make it do. What'll I put on his feet, sir? The man asked, after the customary aye aye, sir. We'll see to that, Wolf Larsen answered, and elevated his voice in a call of Cookie. Thomas Mugridge popped out of his galley like a jack in the box. Go below and fill a sack with coal. "'Any of you fellows got a Bible or prayer book?' was the captain's next demand, this time of the hunters lounging about the companionway. They shook their heads, and someone made a jocular remark which I did not catch, but which raised a general laugh. Wolf Larsen made the same demand of the sailors. Bibles and prayer books seemed scarce articles, but one of the men volunteered to pursue the quest amongst the watch below returning in a minute with the information that there was none. Captain shrugged his shoulders. Then we'll drop him over without any palavering, unless our clerical-looking castaway has the burial service at sea by heart. By this time he had swung fully around and was facing me. You're a preacher, aren't you? he asked. The hunters, there were six of them, to a man turned and regarded I was painfully aware of my likeness to a scarecrow. A laugh went up at my appearance, a laugh that was not lessened or softened by the dead man stretched and grinning on the deck before us, a laugh that was as rough and harsh and frank as the sea itself, that arose out of coarse feelings and blunted sensibilities, from natures that knew neither courtesy nor gentleness. Wolf Larsen did not laugh, though his gray eyes lighted with a slight glint of amusement, and in that moment, having stepped forward quite close to him, I received my first impression of the man himself, of the man as apart from his body, and from the torrent of blasphemy I had heard him spew forth. The face, with large features and strong lines, of the square order, yet well filled out, was apparently massive at first sight. But again, as with the body, the massiveness seemed to vanish, and a conviction to grow of a tremendous and excessive mental or spiritual strength that lay behind, sleeping in the deeps of his being. The jaw, the chin, 
the brow rising to a goodly height and swelling heavily above the eyes these while strong in themselves unusually strong seemed to speak an immense vigor or virility of spirit that lay behind and beyond and out of sight there was no sounding such a spirit no measuring no determining of meets and bounds nor neatly classifying in some pigeonhole with others of similar type the eyes and it was my destiny to know them well were large and handsome wide apart as the true artists are wide sheltering under a heavy brow and arched over by thick black eyebrows the eyes themselves were of that baffling protean gray which is never twice the same which runs through many shades and colorings like intershot silk in sunshine which is gray dark and light and greenish gray and sometimes of the clear azure of the deep sea they were eyes that masked the soul with a thousand guises and that sometimes opened at rare moments and allowed it to rush up as though it were about to fare forth nakedly into the world on some wonderful adventure eyes that could brood with the hopeless somberness of leaden skies that could snap and crackle points of fire like those which sparkle from a whirling sword that could grow chill as an arctic landscape and yet again that could warm and soften and be all a dance with love lights intense and masculine luring and compelling which at the same time fascinate and dominate women till they surrender in a gladness of joy and of relief and sacrifice but to return i told him that unhappily for the burial service i was not a preacher when he sharply demanded what do you do for a living i confess i had never had such a question asked me before nor had i ever canvassed it i was quite taken aback and before i could find myself had sillily stammered i i am a gentleman his lip curled in a swift sneer i have worked i do work i cried impetuously as though he were my judge and i required vindication and at the same time very much aware of my arid idiocy in discussing the subject at all for your living there was something so imperative and masterful about him that i was quite beside myself rattled as furiseth would have termed it like a quaking child before a stern schoolmaster who feeds you was his next question i have an income i answered stoutly and could have bitten my tongue the next instant all of which you will pardon my observing has nothing whatsoever to do with what i wish to see you about but he disregarded my protest who earned it ah, i thought so your father you stand on dead man's legs you've never had any of your own you couldn't walk alone between two sunrises and hustle the meat for your belly for three meals let me see your hand his tremendous dormant strength must have stirred swiftly and accurately or i must have slept a moment 
for before I knew it he had stepped two paces forward, gripped my right hand in his, and held it up for inspection. I tried to withdraw it, but his fingers tightened without visible effort till I thought mine would be crushed. It is hard to maintain one's dignity under such circumstances. I could not squirm or struggle like a schoolboy, nor could I attack such a creature who had but to twist my arm to break it. Nothing remained but to stand still and accept the indignity. I had time to notice that the pockets of the dead man had been emptied on the deck, and that his body and his grin had been wrapped from view in canvas, the folds of which the sailor Johansen was sewing together with coarse white twine, shoving the needle through with a leather contrivance fitted on the palm of his hand. Wolf Larsen dropped my hand with a flirt of disdain. Dead man's hands have kept it soft. Good for little else than dishwashing and scullion work. I wish to be put ashore, I said firmly, for I now had myself in control. I shall pay you whatever you judge your delay and trouble to be worth. He looked at me curiously. Mockery shone in his eyes. I have a counter-proposal to make, and for the good of your soul. My mate's gone, and there'll be a lot of promotion. A sailor comes aft to take mate's place, cabin boy goes forward to take sailor's place, and you take the cabin boy's place. Sign the articles for the cruise, twenty dollars per month and found. Now, what do you say? And mind you, it's for your own soul's sake. It will be the making of you. You might learn in time to stand on your own legs and perhaps to toddle along a bit. But I took no notice. The sails of the vessel I had seen off to the southwest had grown larger and plainer. They were of the same schooner rig as the ghost, though the hull itself, I could see, was smaller. She was a pretty sight, leaping and flying toward us, and evidently bound to pass at close range. The wind had been momentarily increasing, and the sun, after a few angry gleams, had disappeared. The sea had turned a dull leaden gray and grown rougher, and was now tossing foaming whitecaps to the sky. We were traveling faster, and heeled farther over. Once in a gust, the rail dipped under the sea, and the decks on that side were for the moment awash with water that made a couple of the hunters hastily lift their feet. That vessel will soon be passing us. I said, after a moment's pause, as she is going in the opposite direction, she is very probably bound for San Francisco. Very probably, was Wolf Larsen's answer, as he turned partly away from me and cried out, Cookie! Oh, Cookie! The cockney popped out of the galley. Where's that boy? Tell him I want him. Yes, sir. And Thomas Mugridge fled swiftly aft and disappeared down another companionway near the wheel. A moment later he emerged, a heavy-set young fellow of eighteen or nineteen with a glowering villainous countenance trailing at his heels. "'Here he is, sir,' the cook said. But Wolf Larsen ignored that worthy, turning at once to the cabin boy. "'What's your name, boy?' "'George Leach, sir.' 
came the sullen answer, and the boy's bearing showed clearly that he divined the reason for which he had been summoned. "'Not an Irish name,' the captain snapped sharply. "'O'Toole or McCarthy would suit your mug a damn sight better. Unless, very likely, there's an Irishman in your mother's woodpile.' I saw the young fellow's hands clench at the insult and the blood crawl scarlet up his neck. But let that go, Wolf Larsen continued. You may have very good reasons for forgetting your name, and I'll like you none the worse for it as long as you tow the mark. Telegraph Hill, of course, is your port of entry. It sticks out all over your mug. Tough as they make them, and twice as nasty. I know the kind. Well, you can make up your mind to have it taken out of you on this craft, understand? Who shipped you, anyway? MacReady and Swanson. Sir! Wolf Larson thundered. MacReady and Swanson, sir, the boy corrected, his eyes burning with a bitter light. Who got the advance money? They did, sir. I thought as much. And damned glad you were to let them have it. Couldn't make yourself scarce too quick with several gentlemen you may have heard of looking for you. The boy metamorphosed into a savage on the instant. His body bunched together as though for a spring, and his face became as an infuriated beast's as he snarled, It's a... A what? Wolf Larsen asked, a peculiar softness in his voice, as though he were overwhelmingly curious to hear the unspoken word. The boy hesitated, then mastered his temper. Nothing, sir. I take it back. And you have shown me I was right. This with a gratified smile. How old are you? Just turned sixteen, sir. A lie. You'll never see eighteen again. Big for your age, at that with muscles like a horse. Pack up your kit and go forward into the foxhole. You're a boat puller now. You're promoted, see? Without waiting for the boy's acceptance, the captain turned to the sailor who had just finished the gruesome task of sewing up the corpse. Johansson, do you know anything about navigation? No, sir. Well, never mind. You're a mate just the same. Get your traps aft into the mate's berth. Aye, aye, sir, was the cheery response as Johansson started forward. In the meantime, the erstwhile cabin boy had not moved. What are you waiting for? Wolf Larsen demanded. I didn't sign up for boat pullers, sir, was the reply. I signed for cabin boy, and I don't want no boat pulling in mine. Pack up and go forward. This time Wolf Larsen's command was thrillingly imperative. The boy glowered sullenly, but refused to move. Then came another stirring of Wolf Larsen's tremendous strength. It was utterly unexpected, and it was over and done with between the ticks of two seconds. He had sprung fully six feet across the deck and driven his fist into the other's stomach. At the same moment, as though I had been struck myself, I felt a sickening shock in the pit of my stomach. I instanced this to show the sensitiveness of my nervous organization at the time, and how unused I was to spectacles of brutality. The cabin boy, 
and he weighed one hundred and sixty-five at the very least, crumpled up. His body wrapped limply about the fist like a wet rag about a stick. He lifted into the air, described a short curve, and struck the deck alongside the corpse on his head and shoulders, where he lay and writhed about in agony. "'Well?' Larson asked of me. "'Have you made up your mind?' I had glanced occasionally at the approaching schooner, and it was now almost abreast of us, and not more than a couple of hundred yards away. It was a very trim and neat little craft. I could see a large black number on one of its sails, and I had seen pictures of pilot boats. "'What vessel is that?' I asked. "'The pilot boat, Lady Mine.' Wolf Larsen answered grimly. "'Got rid of her pilots and running into San Francisco. She'll be there in five or six hours with this wind.' "'Will you please signal it, then, so that I may be put ashore?' "'Sorry, but I've lost the signal book overboard,' he remarked, and the group of hunters grinned. I debated a moment, looking him squarely in the eyes. I had seen the frightful treatment of the cabin boy, and knew that I should very probably receive the same, if not worse. As I say, I debated with myself, and then I did what I consider the bravest act of my life. I ran to the side, waving my arms, and shouting, "'Lady mine! Ahoy! Take me ashore! A thousand dollars if you take me ashore!' I waited, watching two men who stood by the wheel, one of them steering. The other was lifting a megaphone to his lips. I did not turn my head, though I expected every moment a killing blow from the human brute behind me. At last, after what seemed centuries, unable longer to stand the strain, I looked around. He had not moved. He was standing in the same position, swaying easily to the roll of the ship and lighting a fresh cigar. "'What is the matter? Anything wrong?' This was the cry from the lady mine. Yes, I shouted at the top of my lungs. Life or death, one thousand dollars if you take me ashore. Too much Frisco Tanglefoot for the health of my crew, Wolf Larson shouted after. This one, indicating me with his thumb. Fancy sea serpents and monkeys just now. The man on the lady mine laughed back through the megaphone. The pilot boat plunged past. Give him hell for me, came a final cry, and the two men waved their arms in farewell. I leaned despairingly over the rail, watching the trim little schooner swiftly increasing the bleak sweep of ocean between us. And she would probably be in San Francisco in five or six hours. My head seemed bursting. There was an ache in my throat as though my heart were up in it. A curling wave struck the side and splashed salt spray on my lips. The wind puffed strongly, and the ghost heeled far over, burying her lee rail. I could hear the water rushing down upon the deck. When I turned around a moment later, I saw the cabin boy staggering to his feet. His face was ghastly white, twitching with suppressed pain. He looked very sick. "'Well, Leach, are you going forward?' Wolf Larsen asked. "'Yes, sir,' came the answer of a spirit cowed. 
And you? I was asked. I'll give you a thousand, I began, but was interrupted. Stow that. Are you going to take up your duties as cabin boy, or do I have to take you in hand? What was I to do? To be brutally beaten, to be killed, perhaps, would not help my case. I looked steadily into the cruel gray eyes. They might have been granite for all the light and warmth of a human soul they contained. One may see the soul stir in some men's eyes, but his were bleak and cold and gray as the sea itself. Well? Yes, I said. Say, yes, sir. Yes, sir, I corrected. What is your name? Van Waden, sir. First name? Humphrey, sir. Humphrey Van Waden. Age? Thirty-five, sir. That'll do. Go to the cook and learn your duties. And thus it was that I passed into a state of involuntary servitude to Wolf Larsen. He was stronger than I, that was all. But it was very unreal at the time. It is no less unreal now that I look back upon it. It will always be to me a monstrous, inconceivable thing, a horrible nightmare. Hold on, don't go yet. I stopped obediently in my walk toward the galley. Johansson, call all hands. Now that we've everything cleaned up, we'll have the funeral and get the decks cleared of useless lumber. While Johansson was summoning the watch below, a couple of sailors, under the captain's direction, laid the canvas-swathed corpse upon a hatch cover. On either side the deck, against the rail and bottoms up, were lashed a number of small boats. Several men picked up the hatch cover with its ghastly freight, carried it to the lee side, and rested it on the boats, the feet pointing overboard. To the feet was attached the sack of coal which the cook had fetched. I had always conceived a burial at sea to be a very solemn and awe-inspiring event, but I was quickly disillusioned by this burial at any rate. One of the hunters, a little dark-eyed man whom his mates called Smoke, was telling stories liberally intersprinkled with oaths and obscenities, and every minute or so the group of hunters gave mouth to a laughter that sounded to me like a wolf chorus or the barking of hellhounds. The sailors trooped noisily aft, some of the watch below rubbing the sleep from their eyes, and talked in low tones together. There was an ominous and worried expression on their faces. It was evident that they did not like the outlook of a voyage under such a captain and begun so inauspiciously. From time to time they stole glances at Wolf Larsen, and I could see that they were apprehensive of the man. He stepped up to the hatch cover, and all caps came off. I ran my eyes over them. Twenty men, all told. Twenty-two, including the man at the wheel and myself. I was pardonably curious in my survey, for it appeared my fate to be pent up with them on this miniature floating world for I knew not how many weeks or months. The sailors, in the main, were English and Scandinavian and their faces seemed of the heavy, stolid order. 
The hunters, on the other hand, had stronger and more diversified faces, with hard lines and the marks of the free play of passions. Strange to say, and I noted it all once, Wolf Larsen's features showed no such evil stamp. There seemed nothing vicious in them. True, there were lines, but they were the lines of decision and firmness. It seemed rather a frank and open countenance, which frankness or openness was enhanced by the fact that he was smooth-shaven. I could hardly believe, until the next incident occurred, that it was the face of a man who could behave as he had behaved to the cabin boy. At this moment, as he opened his mouth to speak, puff after puff struck the schooner and pressed her side under. The wind shrieked a wild song through the rigging. Some of the hunters glanced anxiously aloft. The lee rail, where the dead man lay, was buried in the sea, and as the schooner lifted and righted, the water swept across the deck, wetting us above our shoe-tops. A shower of rain drove down upon us, each drop stinging like a hailstone. As it passed, Wolf Larsen began to speak the bareheaded men swaying in unison to the heave and lunge of the deck. "'I only remember one part of the service,' he said, "'and that is, and the body shall be cast into the sea. So cast it in.' He ceased speaking. The men holding the hatch cover seemed perplexed, puzzled, no doubt, by the briefness of the ceremony. He burst upon them in a fury. "'Lift up that end there, damn you!' What the hell's the matter with you? They elevated the end of the hatch cover with pitiful haste, and, like a dog flung overside, the dead man slid feet first into the sea. The coal at his feet dragged him down. He was gone. Johansson, Wolf Larsen said briskly to the new mate, keep all hands on deck now they're here. Get in the topsails and jibs and make a good job of it. We're in for our Easter. Better reef the jib and mainsail, too, while you're about it. In a moment, the decks were in commotion, Johansson bellowing orders and the men pulling or letting go ropes of various sorts, all naturally confusing to a landsman such as myself. But it was the heartlessness of it that especially struck me. The dead man was an episode that was past, an incident that was dropped in a canvas covering with a sack of coal, while the ship sped along and her work went on. Nobody had been affected. The hunters were laughing at a fresh story of smokes, the men pulling and hauling, and two of them climbing aloft. Wolf Larsen was studying the clouding sky to windward, and the dead man, dying obscenely, buried sordidly, and sinking down, down. Then it was that the cruelty of the sea, its relentlessness and awfulness, rushed upon me. Life had become cheap and tawdry, a beastly and inarticulate thing, a soulless stirring of the ooze and slime. I held on to the weather rail, close by the shrouds, and gazed out across the desolate foaming waves to the low-lying fog banks that hid San Francisco and the California coast. 
Rain squalls were driving in between, and I could scarcely see the fog. And this strange vessel, with its terrible men, pressed under by wind and sea, and ever leaping up and out, was heading away into the southwest, into the great and lonely Pacific expanse. End of chapter 3《Chapter Four of the Sea Wolf This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sea Wolf by Jack London. Chapter Four What happened to me next on the sealing schooner Ghost, as I strove to fit into my new environment, are matters of humiliation and pain. The cook, who was called the doctor by the crew, Tommy by the hunters, and Cookie by Wolf Larsen, was a changed person. The difference worked in my status brought about a corresponding difference in treatment from him. Servile and fawning as he had been before, he was now as domineering and bellicose. In truth, I was no longer the fine gentleman with a skin soft as a lady's, but only an ordinary and very worthless cabin boy. He absurdly insisted upon my addressing him as Mr. Mugridge, and his behavior and carriage were insufferable as he showed me my duties. Besides my work in the cabin, with its four small staterooms, I was supposed to be his assistant in the galley, and my colossal ignorance concerning such things as peeling potatoes or washing greasy pots was a source of unending and sarcastic wonder to him. He refused to take into consideration what I was, or rather what my life and the things I was accustomed to had been. This was part of the attitude he chose to adopt toward me, and I confess, ere the day was done, that I hated him with more lively feelings than I had ever hated anyone in my life before. This first day was made more difficult for me from the fact that the ghost, under close reefs, terms such as these I did not learn till later, was plunging through what Mr. Muggeridge called an Owland Sow'easter. At half-past five, under his direction, I set the table in the cabin with rough weather trays in place, and then carried the tea and cooked food down from the galley. In this connection, I cannot forbear relating my first experience with a boarding sea. Look sharp, or you'll get doused, was Mr. Mugridge's parting injunction as I left the galley with a big teapot in one hand and in the hollow of the other arm several loaves of fresh-baked bread. One of the hunters, a tall, loose-jointed chap named Henderson, was going aft at the time from the steerage the name the hunters facetiously gave their midships sleeping quarters, to the cabin. Wolf Larsen was on the poop, smoking his everlasting cigar. "'Here she comes! Sling your rock!' the cook cried. I stopped, for I did not know what was coming, and saw the galley door slide shut with a bang. Then I saw Henderson leaping like a madman for the main rigging, up which he shot on the inside till he was many feet higher than my head. Also I saw a great wave, curling and foaming, poised far above the rail. 
I was directly under it. My mind did not work quickly. Everything was so new and strange. I grasped that I was in danger, but that was all. I stood still in trepidation. Then Wolf Larsen shouted from the poop, Grab hold of something, you... you hump! But it was too late. I sprang toward the rigging, to which I might have clung, and was met by the descending wall of water. What happened after that was very confusing. I was beneath the water, suffocating and drowning. My feet were out from under me, and I was turning over and over, and being swept along I knew not where. Several times I collided against hard objects, once striking my right knee a terrible blow. Then the flood seemed suddenly to subside, and I was breathing the good air again. I had been swept against the galley and around the steerage companionway, from the weather side to the lee scuppers. The pain from my hurt knee was agonizing. I could not put my weight on it, or at least I thought I could not put my weight on it, and I felt sure the leg was broken. But the cook was after me, shouting through the lee galley door, "'Ere, you! Don't talk all night about it! Where's the pot? Lost overboard? Serve you bloody well right if your neck was broke!' I managed to struggle to my feet. The great teapot was still in my hand. I limped to the galley and handed it to him. But he was consumed with indignation, real or feigned. "'God bly me if you ain't a slob! What are you good for, anyway, I'd like to know? Eh? What are you good for, anyway? Can't even carry a bit of tea aft without losing it. Now I'll have to boil some more.' "'And what are you sniffling about?' he burst out at me with renewed rage. "'Cause you've hurt your poor little leg, poor little mamma's darling.' I was not sniffling though my face might well have been drawn and twitching from the pain. But I called up all my resolution, set my teeth, and hobbled back and forth from galley to cabin and cabin to galley without further mishap. Two things I had acquired by my accident. An injured kneecap that went undressed, and from which I suffered for weary months, and the name of Hump, which Wolf Larsen had called me from the poop. Thereafter, fore and aft, I was known by no other name, until the term became a part of my thought processes, and I identified it with myself, thought of myself this hump, as though hump were I, and had always been I. It was no easy task waiting on the cabin table, where sat Wolf Larsen, Johansen, and the six hunters. The cabin was small to begin with, and to move around, as I was compelled to, was not made easier by the schooner's violent pitching and wallowing. But what struck me most forcibly was the total lack of sympathy on the part of the men whom I served. I could feel my knee through my clothes swelling and swelling, and I was sick and faint from the pain of it. I could catch glimpses of my face, white and ghastly, distorted with pain, in the cabin mirror. All the men must have seen my condition, but not one spoke or took notice of me, till I was almost grateful to Wilf Larsen later on, I was washing the dishes, when he said, Don't let a little thing like that bother you. You'll get used to such things in time. 
It may cripple you some, but all the same, you'll be learning to walk. That's what you call a paradox, isn't it? He added. He seemed pleased when I nodded my head with the customary, Yes, sir. I suppose you know a bit about literary things, huh? Good. I'll have some talks with you sometime. And then, taking no further account of me, he turned his back and went up on deck. That night, when I had finished an endless amount of work, I was sent to sleep in the steerage, where I made up a spare bunk. I was glad to get out of the detestable presence of the cook, and to be off my feet. To my surprise, my clothes had dried on me, and there seemed no indications of catching cold, either from the last soaking, or from the prolonged soaking from the foundering of the Martinez. Under ordinary circumstances, after all that I had undergone, I should have been fit for bed and a trained nurse. But my knee was bothering me terribly. As well as I could make out, the kneecap seemed turned up on edge in the midst of the swelling. As I sat in my bunk examining it, the six hunters were all in steerage, smoking and talking in loud voices. Henderson took a passing glance at it. Looks nasty, he commented. Tie a rag around it, and it'll be all right. That was all. And on the land, I would have been lying on the broad of my back with a surgeon attending on me, and with strict injunctions to do nothing but rest. But I must do these men justice. Callous as they were to my suffering, they were equally callous to their own when anything befell them. And this was due, I believe, first to habit, and second, to the fact that they were less sensitively organized. I really believe that a finely organized, high-strung man would suffer twice and thrice as much as they from a like injury. Tired as I was, exhausted in fact, I was prevented from sleeping by the pain in my knee. It was all I could do to keep from groaning aloud. At home, I should undoubtedly have given vent to my anguish, but this new and elemental environment seemed to call for a savage repression. Like the savage, the attitude of these men was stoical in great things, childish in little things. I remember, later in the voyage, seeing Kerfoot, another of the hunters, lose a finger by having it smashed to a jelly and he did not even murmur or change the expression on his face. Yet I have seen this same man, time and again, fly into the most outrageous passion over a trifle. He was doing it now, vociferating, bellowing, waving his arms, and cursing like a fiend, and all because of a disagreement with another hunter as to whether a seal pup knew instinctively how to swim. He held that it did, that it could swim the moment it was born. The other hunter, Latimer, a lean, Yankee-looking fellow with shrewd, narrow-slitted eyes, held otherwise, held that the seal pup was born on the land for no other reason than it could not swim, that its mother was compelled to teach it to swim as birds were compelled to teach their nestlings how to fly. For the most part, the remaining four hunters leaned on the table or lay in their bunks and left the discussion to the two antagonists. But they were supremely interested, 
for every little while they ardently took sides, and sometimes all were talking at once, till their voices surged back and forth in waves of sound like mimic thunder rolls in the confined space. Childish and immaterial as the topic was, the quality of their reasoning was still more childish and immaterial. In truth, there was very little reasoning, or none at all. Their method was one of assertion, assumption, and denunciation. They proved that a seal pup could swim or not swim at birth by stating the proposition very bellicosely and then following it up with an attack on the opposing man's judgment, common sense, nationality, or past history. Rebuttal was precisely similar. I have related this in order to show the mental caliber of the men with whom I was thrown in contact. Intellectually, they were children inhabiting the physical forms of men. And they smoked, incessantly smoked, using a coarse, cheap, and offensive-smelling tobacco. The air was thick and murky with the smoke of it and this, combined with the violent movement of the ship as she struggled through the storm, would surely have made me seasick had I been a victim to that malady. As it was, it made me quite squeamish, though this nausea might have been due to the pain of my leg and exhaustion. As I lay there thinking, I naturally dwelt upon myself and my situation. It was unparalleled, undreamed of, that I, Humphrey Van Waden, a scholar and a dilettante, if you please, in things artistic and literary, should be lying here on a Bering Sea seal-hunting schooner. Cabin boy! I had never done any hard manual labor or scullion labor in my life. I had lived a placid, uneventful, sedentary existence all my days the life of a scholar and a recluse on an assured and comfortable income. Violent life and athletic sports had never appealed to me. I had always been a bookworm. So my sisters and father had called me during my childhood. I had gone camping but once in my life, and then I left the party almost at its start and returned to the comforts and conveniences of a roof. And here I was, with dreary and endless vistas before me of table-setting, potato-peeling, and dishwashing, And I was not strong. The doctors had always said that I had a remarkable constitution, but I had never developed it or my body through exercise. My muscles were small and soft like a woman's, or so the doctors had said time and again, in the course of their attempts to persuade me to go in for physical culture fads. But I had preferred to use my head rather than my body, and here I was in no fit condition for the rough life in prospect. These are merely a few of the things that went through my mind and are related for the sake of vindicating myself in advance in the weak and helpless role I was destined to play. But I thought also of my mother and sisters, and pictured their grief. I was among the missing dead of the Martinez disaster, an unrecovered body. I could see the headlines in the papers. 
the fellows at the university club and the bibblet shaking their heads and saying poor chap and i could see charlie furiseth as i had said good-bye to him that morning lounging in a dressing-gown on the bepillowed window-couch and delivering himself of oracular and pessimistic epigrams and all the while rolling plunging climbing the moving mountains and falling and wallowing in the foaming valleys this schooner ghost was fighting her way farther and farther into the heart of the pacific and i was on her i could hear the wind above it came to my ears as a muffled roar now and again feet stamped overhead an endless creaking was going on all about me the woodwork and the fittings groaning and squeaking and complaining in a thousand keys the hunters were still arguing and roaring like some semi-human amphibious breed the air was filled with oaths and indecent expressions i could see their faces flushed and angry the brutality distorted and emphasized by the sickly yellow of the sea lamps which rocked back and forth with the ship through the dim smoke haze the bunks looked like the sleeping dens of animals in a menagerie oilskins and sea boots were hanging from the walls and here and there rifles and shotguns rested securely in the racks it was a sea fitting for the buccaneers and pirates of bygone years my imagination ran riot and still i could not sleep and it was a long long night weary and dreary and long end of chapter four Chapter Five of the Sea Wolf. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sea Wolf by Jack London. Chapter Five. But my first night in the hunter's steerage was also my last. Next day, Johansen, the new mate, was routed from the cabin by Wolf Larsen and sent into the steerage to sleep thereafter, while I took possession of the tiny cabin stateroom which on the first day of the voyage had already had two occupants the reason for this change was quickly learned by the hunters and became the cause of a deal of grumbling on their part it seemed that johansen in his sleep lived over each night the events of the day his incessant talking and shouting and bellowing of orders had been too much for wolf larsen who had accordingly foisted the nuisance upon his hunters after a sleepless night i arose weak and in agony to hobble through my second day on the ghost thomas mugridge routed me out at half-past five much in the fashion that bill sykes must have routed out his dog but mr mugridge's brutality to me was paid back in kind and with interest the unnecessary noise he made i had lain wide-eyed the whole night must have awakened one of the hunters, for a heavy shoe whizzed through the semi-darkness, and Mr. Mugridge, with a sharp howl of pain, humbly begged everybody's pardon. Later on, in the galley, I noticed that his ear was bruised and swollen. 
it never went entirely back to its normal shape and was called a cauliflower ear by the sailors the day was filled with miserable variety i had taken my dried clothes down from the galley the night before and the first thing i did was to exchange the cook's garments for them i looked for my purse in addition to some small change and i have a good memory for such things it had contained one hundred and eighty-five dollars in gold and paper the purse i found but its contents with the exception of the small silver had been abstracted i spoke to the cook about it when i went on deck to take up my duties in the galley and though i had looked forward to a surly answer i had not expected the belligerent harangue that i received look here ump he began a malicious light in his eyes and a snarl in his throat you want your nose punched if you think i'm a thief just keep it to yourself or you'll find out bloody well mistaken you are strike me blind at this ain't gratitude for you here you come a poor miserable specimen of human scum and i takes you into my galley and treats you handsome and this is what i get for it next time you can go to hell say i and i've a good mind to give you what for anyway so saying he put up his fists and started for me to my shame be it i cowered away from the blow and ran out the galley door what else was i to do force nothing but force obtained on this brute ship moral suasion was a thing unknown picture it to yourself a man of ordinary stature slender of build and with weak undeveloped muscles who has lived a peaceful placid life and is unused to violence of any sort what could such a man possibly do there was no more reason that i should stand and face these human beasts than that i should stand and face an infuriated bull so i thought it out at the time feeling the need for vindication and desiring to be at peace with my conscience but this vindication did not satisfy nor to this day can i permit my manhood to look back upon those events and feel entirely exonerated the situation was something that really exceeded rational formulas for conduct and demanded more than the cold conclusions of reason when viewed in the light of formal logic there is not one thing of which to be ashamed but nevertheless a shame rises within me at the recollection and in the pride of my manhood i feel that my manhood has in unaccountable ways been smirched and sullied all of which is neither here nor there the speed with which i ran from the galley caused excruciating pain in my knee and i sank down helplessly at the break of the poop but the cockney had not pursued me look at em run look at em run i could hear him crying and with a gime leg at that come on back you poor little mamma's darling i won't hit you no i won't i came back and went on with my work and here the episode ended for the time though further developments were yet to take place 
I set the breakfast table in the cabin, and at seven o'clock waited on the hunters and officers. The storm had evidently broken during the night, though a huge sea was still running and a stiff wind blowing. Sail had been made in the early watches, so that the ghost was racing along under everything except the two topsails and the flying jib. These three sails, I gathered from the conversation, were to be set immediately after breakfast. I learned also that Wolf Larsen was anxious to make the most of the storm which was driving him to the southwest, into that portion of the sea where he expected to pick up the northeast trades. It was before this steady wind that he hoped to make the major portion of the run to Japan, curving south into the tropics and north again as he approached the coast of Asia. After breakfast I had another unenviable experience. When I had finished washing the dishes, I cleaned the cabin stove and carried the ashes up on deck to empty them. Wolf Larsen and Henderson were standing near the wheel, deep in conversation. The sailor, Johnson, was steering. As I started toward the weather side, I saw him make a sudden motion with his head, which I mistook for a token of recognition and good morning. In reality, he was attempting to warn me to throw my ashes over the lee side. Unconscious of my blunder, I passed by Wolf Larsen and the hunter and flung the ashes over the side to windward. The wind drove them back, and not only over me, but over Henderson and Wolf Larsen. The next instant the latter kicked me violently as a cur is kicked. I had not realized there could be so much pain in a kick. I reeled away from him and leaned against the cabin in a half-fainting condition. Everything was swimming before my eyes, and I turned sick. The nausea overpowered me, and I managed to crawl to the side of the vessel. But Wolf Larsen did not follow me up. Brushing the ashes from his clothes, he had resumed his conversation with Henderson. Johansson, who had seen the affair from the break of the poop, sent a couple of sailors aft to clean up the mess. Later in the morning, I received a surprise of a totally different sort. Following the cook's instructions, I had gone into Wolf Larsen's stateroom to put it to rights and make the bed. Against the wall, near the head of the bunk, was a rack filled with books. I glanced over them, noting with astonishment such names as Shakespeare, Tennyson, Poe, and De Quincey. There were scientific works, too, among which were represented men such as Tyndall, Proctor, and Darwin. Astronomy and physics were represented, and I remarked Bullfinch's Age of Fable, Shaw's History of English and American Literature, and Johnson's Natural History in two large volumes. Then there were a number of grammars, such as Metcalfe's and Reed and Kellogg's, and I smiled as I saw a copy of The Dean's English. I could not reconcile these books with the man, from what I had seen of him, and I wondered if he could possibly read them. But when I came to make the bed, I found between the blankets, dropped apparently as he had sunk off to sleep, a complete browning, the Cambridge edition. It was open it in a balcony, and I noticed here and there passages underlined in pencil. Further letting drop the volume during a lurch of the ship, a sheet of paper fell out. 
It was scrawled over with geometrical diagrams and calculations of some sort. It was patent that this terrible man was no ignorant clod, such as one would inevitably suppose him to be from his exhibitions of brutality. At once he became an enigma. One side or the other of his nature was perfectly comprehensible, but both sides together were bewildering. I had already remarked that his language was excellent, marred with an occasional slight inaccuracy. Of course, in common speech with the sailors and hunters, it sometimes fairly bristled with errors, which was due to the vernacular itself. But in the few words he had held with me, it had been clear and correct. This glimpse I had caught of his other side must have emboldened me, for I resolved to speak to him about the money I had lost. "'I have been robbed!' I said to him a little later, when I found him pacing up and down the poop alone. "'Sir!' he corrected, not harshly, but sternly. "'I have been robbed, sir,' I amended. "'How did it happen?' he asked. Then I told him the whole circumstance, how my clothes had been left to dry in the galley, and how later I was nearly beaten by the cook when I mentioned the matter. He smiled at my recital. "'Pickings!' he concluded. "'Cookies pickings! And don't you think your miserable life is worth the price? Besides, consider it a lesson. You'll learn in time how to take care of your money for yourself. I suppose up to now your lawyer has done it for you, or your business agent.' I could feel the quiet sneer through his words, but demanded, "'How can I get it back again?' "'That's your lookout. You haven't any lawyer or business agent now, so you'll have to depend on yourself. When you get a dollar, hang on to it. A man who leaves his money lying around the way you did deserves to lose it. Besides, you have sinned. You have no right to put temptation in the way of your fellow creatures. You tempted Cookie, and he fell. You have placed his immortal soul in jeopardy. By the way, do you believe in the immortal soul? His lids lifted lazily as he asked the question, and it seemed that the deeps were opening to me and that I was gazing into his soul. But it was an illusion. Far as it might have seemed, no man has ever seen very far into Wolf Larsen's soul. Or seen it at all, of this I am convinced. It was a very lonely soul, I was to learn, that never unmasked, though at rare moments it played at doing so. I read immortality in your eyes, I answered, dropping the sir, an experiment, for I thought the intimacy of the conversation warranted it. He took no notice. By that I take it you see something that is alive, but that necessarily does not have to live forever. I read more than that, I continued boldly. Then you read consciousness. You read the consciousness of life that is alive, but still no further away, no endlessness of life. How clearly he thought, and how well he expressed what he thought. From regarding me curiously, he turned his head and glanced over the leaden sea to windward. A bleakness came into his eyes, and the lines of his mouth grew severe and harsh. He was evidently in a pessimistic mood. "'Then to what end?' he demanded abruptly, turning back to me. "'If I am immortal, why?' I halted. How could I explain my idealism to this man? 
how could I put into speech a something felt, a something like the strains of music heard in sleep, a something that convinced yet transcended utterance? What do you believe, then? I countered. I believe that life is a mess, he answered promptly. It is like yeast, a ferment, a thing that moves and may move for a minute, an hour, a year, or a hundred years, but that in the end will cease to move. The big eat the little that they may continue to move, the strong eat the weak that they may retain their strength. The lucky eat the most and move the longest, that is all. What do you make of those things? He swept his arm in an impatient gesture toward a number of the sailors who were working on some kind of rope stuff amidships. They move, so does the jellyfish move. They move in order to eat, in order that they may keep moving. There you have it. They live for their belly's sake, and the belly is for their sake. It's a circle. You get nowhere. Neither do they. In the end, they come to a standstill. They move no more. They are dead. They have dreams, I interrupted. Radiant, flashing dreams. Of grub, he concluded sententiously. And of more. Grub. Of a larger appetite and more luck in satisfying it. His voice sounded harsh. There was no levity in it. For look you, they dream of making lucky voyages which will bring them more money, of becoming the mates of ships, of finding fortunes, in short, of being in a better position for preying on their fellows, of having all night in good grub and somebody else to do the dirty work. You and I are just like them. There is no difference except that we have eaten more and better. I am eating them now, and you too. But in the past, you have eaten more than I have. You have slept in soft beds and worn fine clothes and eaten good meals. Who made those beds and those clothes and those meals? Not you. You never made anything in your own sweat. You live on an income which your father earned. You are like a frigate bird, swooping down upon the boobies and robbing them of the fish they have caught. You are one with a crowd of men who have made what they call a government, who are masters of all other men, and who eat the food the other men get and would like to eat themselves. You wear the warm clothes. They made the clothes, but they shiver in rags and ask you, the lawyer or business agent who handles your money, for a job. But that is beside the matter, I cried. Not at all. He was speaking rapidly now and his eyes were flashing. It is piggishness, and it is life. Of what use or sense is an immortality of piggishness? What is the end? What is it all about? You have made no food, yet the food you have eaten or wasted might have saved the lives of a score of wretches who made the food but did not eat it. What immortal end did you serve, or did they? Consider yourself and me. What does your boasted immortality amount to when your life runs foul of mine? You would like to go back to the land, which is a favorable place for your kind of piggishness. It is a whim of mine to keep you aboard this ship where my piggishness flourishes. And keep you I will. I may make or break you. You may die today, this week, 
or next month. I could kill you now with a blow of my fist, for you are a miserable weakling. But if we are immortal, what is the reason for this? To be piggish as you and I have been all our lives does not seem to be just the thing for immortals to be doing. Again, what's it all about? Why have I kept you here? Because you are stronger, I managed to blurt out. But why stronger? He went on at once with his perpetual queries. Because I am a bigger bit of the ferment than you. Don't you see? Don't you see? But the hopelessness of it, I protested. I agree with you, he answered. Then why move at all, since moving is living? Without moving and being part of the yeast, there would be no hopelessness. But, and there it is, we want to live and move, though we have no reason to, because it happens that it is the nature of life to live and move, to want to live and move. If it were not for this, life would be dead. It is because of this life that is in you that you dream of your immortality. The life that is in you is alive and wants to go on being alive forever. Bah! An eternity of piggishness. He abruptly turned on his heel and started forward. He stopped at the break of the poop and called me to him. By the way, how much was it that Cookie got away with? He asked. One hundred and eighty-five dollars, sir, I answered. He nodded his head. A moment later, as I started down the companion stairs to lay the table for dinner, I heard him loudly cursing some men amidships. End of chapter 5、Everybody、in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just six dollars. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba da ba ba ba.